Welcome to the 20th episode of the Street Roots Podcast, hosted by yours truly, Devon Pouncey. Co-hosting today's episode is Street Roots Lead Ambassador and Mobile Journalism Coordinator Gary Barker. Gary and I are joined by special guest Nick Kristoff of the New York Times, and we discuss how his Oregon roots influences his journalism, his book co-written with his wife Cheryl Wudun titled Tight Rope Americans Reaching for Hope, and much more. So sit back and enjoy everybody as we speak with Nick Kristoff of the New York Times. Nick Kristoff of the New York Times. Thank you so much for taking your time out to join me and Gary here for this interview. Oh, I'm delighted to join you. Absolutely, absolutely. So for starters, as soon as you go to Nick Kristoff's Twitter, you see that he's an Oregon farm boy that now writes for the New York Times. Um, Could you just sort of talk about your childhood and growing up uh, on a farm in Oregon and how that sort of influenced you to get to where you are today? Sure. So um, I grew up on a farm about uh, four miles uh, out of Yamhill, between Yamhill and Gaston. Uh, we mostly had orchards, uh, cherries and prunes and, uh, you know, and typical farm, a few cattle, a few chickens, a few odds and ends, and then some timber. And um, it was a area that had uh, really done very, very well economically for most of the 20th century. Um, uh, the, you know, it, people worked in the local sawmills, they uh, worked in the local factories, and that was a time when you could work in a factory or in a sawmill, have a union job, and actually earn a pretty decent wage. And, you know, those jobs just, just went away. And um, so I... You know, I've I've had this wonderful career and have been working for the New York Times, and uh, then I um, then I you know I visit old friends, and uh, a lot of lives have just disintegrated. And when jobs went away, uh, meth came in, and then you know there's this cycle of people self-medicate with meth, and then they get a criminal record, and then they become even less employable. And the social fabric just kind of fell apart very quickly. And it's been heartbreaking to watch. Wow. I, I say that was. And you had a lot of friendships that they kind of fell apart because of the, them going down that slippery slope. That the, yeah. yeah. Well, it you know, it wasn't so much as the friendships fell apart. I mean, I still, you know, deeply care about folks. And I think they care deeply about me, um, even as their paths have gone different ways. but. Um, they're, you know, they're, they've been wrestling, you know, a a bunch have been spending a lot of time in prison. Uh, some of them have done some, um, really terrible things. Two of them raped young girls, uh, and were in prison for raping children. Um, and, uh, and a bunch have died from overdoses, uh, suicide, uh, just, you know, the kind of health effects that you suffer when you don't see a doctor regularly. And, you know, it wasn't that something suddenly went wrong with my town, you know, or that they are worse than their parents or their grandparents were, but, uh, but jobs 
you know, good jobs went away for people who didn't have much education. And uh, that was pretty devastating. So for you, how did the writing aspect tie into that? Obviously, from some of the things that you tend to cover, um, you write about some of the harder hitting issues in society. Um, Can you just sort of speak to how, you know, some of your life experiences and some of the experiences of people that were around you, that grew up around you, impact what it is that you cover today for the times? Yeah. um, You know, I think of... I think that the power of journalism is not so much changing people's minds about issues that they've thought about, but rather it's sometimes making them think about issues that they'd rather not. And I tend to think that we as a society are worse at addressing issues that are hard to talk about. You know, it's anything to do with mental illness, uh, domestic violence, anything to do with sex. Um, and one thing that I can do as a journalist is write articles that kind of force readers to pay attention to these difficult, awkward issues and make them uncomfortable, make my readers spill their coffee, you know, in the morning. And hopefully, in some cases, that is going to be a step toward better policy. So that's what I try. I try to make my readers spill their coffee. <laughs> that's what I do. <laughs> yeah. Being that you have been in, in the city of New York, and I'm quite sure being that you, are, you you do your research and you go out and see, is, is there a difference between herbal uh, property or certain, you know, the economy to the city or they, or they the same to you? So, um, you know, there, there certainly are some differences and, you know, race is one that uh, obviously in urban areas in America, there are a lot more African-Americans in places like Yamhill, my hometown, it's overwhelmingly white. Um, I think that uh, a lot of African-American urban neighborhoods went through this cycle about a generation earlier and essentially, you know, as I see it, jobs were lost and then that had this devastating effect on on communities and um and then that that came to white rural communities you know about 20 25 years later uh, but in so many ways i think you know it's similar it's uh it, the, you know in the 1990s in uh, in White Yam Hill, I think there were a lot of white people who looked around at struggles in African American communities, and they said, "You know, the problem is those people, their culture. You know, that's deadbeat dads. It's uh, no personal responsibility. It's bad choices." And meanwhile, there was a great uh, Harvard sociologist who said, "No, it's about it's about jobs," and he was exactly right because when jobs left. <laughs> left Lily White Yam Hill, and when they left White Kentucky, and when they left White Maine, the same patterns unfolded. And, um, you know, I think that policies were often really brutal toward those who were struggling when it was largely African-American communities. And, you know, you think about uh, the war on drugs, for example. I I think that in a in, in some ways policy and politicians are becoming more compassionate 
as more white people are struggling in the same ways. And, you know, this is, it's a double standard, it's hypocritical, it's unfair, but it may actually be a way of belatedly getting better policies for people of, of every complexion. Absolutely. Um, your book, Tight Ropes, Americans Reaching for Hope, uh, that you co-wrote with Cheryl Wudan. Um, can you talk a little bit about it and what sort of the inspiration was for the book? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I was traveling around for the New York Times covering humanitarian crises around the globe, in Yemen and Sudan and Bangladesh and so on. And then, you know, I come back to Yam Hill and I saw a humanitarian crisis unfolding there. And, you know, more than a quarter of the kids on my old school bus have died from drugs, alcohol and suicide. What are called deaths of despair. And uh, the the family that got on the bus right after me every day uh, was a family called the Naps. And uh, the oldest kid, Farlan Knapp, was my grade in school. And um, then his brother Zeeland, his brother Nathan, their sister Regina, and their baby brother Keelan. And um, they, you know, they were doing great. And when, when Farlan turned 16, his family got him a Ford Mustang. We were all jealous of Farlan. And then, and then none of the, none of the five nap kids graduated from high school. Uh, their lives just imploded. Farlan lost his job. He self-medicated with meth and heroin and alcohol, and he died of liver disease as a result. Uh, his brother Zeeland died in a house fire when he was passed out drunk. Uh, his brother Nathan blew himself up cooking meth. Regina uh, died of hepatitis from IV drug use. And uh, baby brother Keelan, um, he was protected in part because he spent 13 years in the Oregon State Penitentiary. But then he got out and at the beginning of the pandemic, just over a year ago, he died of a, of a heroin overdose. And, you know, five kids who at one point kind of symbolized that permeability, just gone. And and so we we wanted to write tightrope to underscore just how many Americans have been left behind, to put a human face on some of them, and to explain, you know, that this is not inevitable, that there are we can have better policies. And this, you know, in some ways it is about bad choices. And it's, you know, it's partly about bad choices on the part of of Farland, and he shouldn't have cooked meth. Um, but it's also bad choices about us as a society, about our policy on drugs, you know, lock people up rather than provide treatment, about policies on jobs, on minimum wage, on um, education, and, and so on. And so we wanted, we wanted to use tightrope as a way of encouraging people to, you know, for American society to make better choices. Oh, that's, that sounds great. You know, I, I'm just curious. I, I, I want let to you, let you have an opportunity to let a secret out of the bag. What are you thinking that your follow-up is going to be? I don't, I don't really know. Um, I, you know, the reporting on tightrope, you know, deeply connected me again to Oregon. We, we began reporting it in 2018 and, then um, and then we were doing a documentary, a TV documentary to go with it. And so we spent a lot of 2018, 19 
uh, on the farm, on the family farm, working on the book. And then, of course, the pandemic hit. And so we were on the farm again. What better place to socially isolate? And, you know, it, it feels it feels very much like home to me. And it feels like there, you know, it feels like reporting that can make a difference. And I, I have a, some great, a great platform. Um, I'd like to use it to try to highlight some of these inequities in the U.S. and do my little bit to try to make a difference if I can. Absolutely. And lastly here, um, just for young journalists, obviously you've, you've been writing for quite some time. You write for the New York Times, which is one of the more prominent um, journalism organizations around. Um, just kind of what's some words of encouragement or, or just some advice that you would have for young journalists. I know Gary here um, is a part of the mobile journalism program at Street Roots. Um, what do you just say for people that are navigating through this industry? So, um, you know, first I'd say just that it's really important work. And, you know, um, Gary, you, you know, the, one of the problems with issues like, uh, like homelessness is that people just don't want to face it. They turn away from it and they don't, there isn't a human face on it. They dehumanize people. and. I think that journalism is one way of putting human faces uh, on all, all kinds of issues like this and making people relate and understand that, you know, what separates me from somebody else is mostly just luck and that luck can change. And that, you know, those who've been lucky maybe have some moral obligation to help those who've been a little less lucky and and certainly not to point fingers and cast blame and you know, adopt punitive policies. And so I think that at the margins, journalism can um, humanize some of these problems and lead to better policies. Um, I guess for young journalists, I would just say that the, the way you get to be better is you read a lot and you write a lot. And it's, you know, so much of it is just practice and learning by doing. And, um, I never went to journalism school. Um, I, I just, you know, I, I just write and write and write and, and then, and, and I write and write and rewrite. I mean, I, I, I spend an awful lot of time um, uh, reworking what I've done and trying to think, you know, how can I, how can I get readers to care about this story and how can I make it more interesting to them and engaging? What can I do? How can I find a better story a more compelling story? Cause I, I want, and I want people to read and be moved and change the way they think about issues. Absolutely. Well, Gary, you got anything else? No, I'm, I'm just um, I'm amazed with all the information that I can receive. And uh, I want to thank you for sharing your time and, and, your, and your wisdom and your hope with us. And thank you for uh, bringing up Raven Drake and when you was doing the pandemic. And, and we really appreciate that here at Street Roots. And so we just thank want you. To we want to keep in touch with you and uh, make sure that you are doing well. And how does it feel to be writing with your wife? And that's the co-op. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, um, 
that's mostly a <laughs> mostly a good thing. We we edit each other, and um, you know, people sometimes ask, "How can you write a book with your wife and stay married?" Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm wondering. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you uh, you know, but we have three kids, and if you can raise kids together and stay married, then a book is a piece of cake. <laughs> yeah, all right, for sure. <laughs> and uh, so uh, so it's all. It's all worked out, and uh, and thanks for thanks for what you do, truly. Thank you. Appreciate you well, again. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Street Roots Podcast. And don't be surprised if one day we reach out again. I look forward to that. All right. All right. Appreciate you. All right. Have a Take good care. one. Take care. Bye bye.